Earthworms produce metallothenin, a protein that is specifically designed to wrap around particular metals and keep them safe. So says Mark Hodson from the University of Reading. Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast, where the only person sat on the sofa this week was thrown out of the University of Reading. I'm here, Heather from Wiggly Wigglers, and I'm joined today by a farmer, Phil. <laughs> I enjoyed my time at Reading, brief as it was. <laughs> Intro, Michael, please. Da 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 <laughs> da da. Anyway, if you want to find out about how earthworms are 21st century eco-warriors, so the British Association of Science Festival in Liverpool says, then I can't give you the web address because it's one of those dot dash number things. So go to the BBC and search on Earthworms to Aid Soil Cleanup, Elizabeth Mitchell. And thank you, Simon Sherlock, who we've now met, we've meted and greeted for that link. It's a great article. I've got a question for you. Have you? This year seems to be the most fabulous year for slugs. Everybody, gardeners and farmers alike, are saying... (laughs) We've sold so many nemeslugs and slug gones and slug traps. My question is this. There's two parts to my question. Does that mean that it's also a really good year for earthworms in the soil? So that, you know, are they successful because they like similar conditions? And on a more negative front, every farmer I know, including me and gardeners, are being forced to attack the slugs. And obviously using nemeslug, there are no issues for the earthworm. But in the farming situation, we're having to use slug bait, which we know does have an issue for the earthworm. And so we have this sort of conundrum that our slugs and earthworms doing well, and we're then having to kill them with slug bait. Well, listening to Fiona Hillman's talk, she's a fellow Nuffield scholar who got completely into soil, worms, etc. Good presentation. Very good presentation. Well done, Fiona, if you're listening. Her point is that we should be completely natural, that we should stop ploughing so much, says Heather, who's about to go tomorrow night to talk to Eskleyside Ploughing Society dinner that the whole point of it is that we need to be natural and that we keep treating isolated problems and really we should be thinking about the whole soil. And that's what Prince Charles says. He did, and they're right. And it's, it comes back to rotation and all right. It's easy to say you must never plough, but of course all agriculture and gardening is a compromise. But if you can work it round so you do it less... I mean, one of the presentations was suggesting, and I know this to be true using plants instead of subsoilers so that if you grow for example oilseed rape is a particularly good plant for breaking up the pan down in the soil and there are other plants that do that and then obviously grass puts organic matter back in the soil and so on so that you can limit the compromise by a bit of intelligent thinking round what you do and that was the theme of several of your colleagues at the Nuffield Conference. Yeah, 
in a minute, though. You can have it always because, you know, you're making yourself sound like some glorified, natural, organic hippie. And really, what she was saying was that we need to get away from using any chemicals because we need the whole health of the soil. So you can't dip into it when you feel like it. You can't say, oh, yes, well, we'll help earthworms and we'll help this and that. But then I'm going to put 20 tonnes of nitrogen on and put some slug bait on and, and I'm going to spray on my crops. You can't have it both ways, can you? I can, because I take the view that... Of course you you can, Palmer, (laughs) silly me. You shouldn't polarise the issue and that all these different methods and theories give us things that we can apply to our own compromise. All of them are a compromise of one sort or another, but what we should do is to learn from different people to see whether we can improve our own compromise. Yeah, but some people have been going on about this for hundreds of years. You think of Charles Darwin, what was his quote? The plough is one of the most ancient and most valuable of man's inventions. But long before he existed, the land was in fact regularly ploughed and still continues to be thus ploughed by earthworms. It may be doubted whether there are many more animals which have played so important a part in the history of the world as have these lowly creatures. And here is the warning for you, Farmer Phil, with your slug bait. Even in the worm that crawls the earth, there glows a divine spark. When you slaughter a creature, you slaughter God. Charles Darwin. Dan, Dan, Dan. Didn't mean to, honest. (laughs) Thing is... We're depleting the soil, aren't we? That's what Fiona Hillman said. And that's what what Becky Float said about phosphate. That was the whole theme of the Nuffield Farming Conference. That's right. And there's just been a report out, there's been a study which said that effectively modern agriculture is depleting their fertility steadily over a a long-term period. We saw a picture on one of those reports that showed somewhere in California that had been depleted by 19 feet. That's right. The soil was 19 feet higher than it was on the picture over, well, the last century. But that's not the same as depleting the fertility. That's just losing the soil full stop. That's evaporated or blown away. Yeah, but isn't that the point? Absolutely. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, that is the thing, is that you have to try and adjust the compromise so it's better. You can't cure it because the act of growing food in any way, shape or form is never going to be 100% sustainable. And quite frankly, it's not politically sustainable to say, well, we're not going to cultivate food anymore. It's a non-starter. But what you know we... what you need, Farmer Phil? Compost. Well, that's and right. I know just a jolly person <laughs> to supply you. And I would love to be selling you product instead of you selling me product. So how's about it, old bean? <laughs> but that's the point, is that we have to take on board all these, what some modern farmers would call old-fashioned ideas, and actually try to work around the idea of making what we do more sustainable. So Waffle, darling, what are you doing this year to make a difference? Well, what I'm doing is I am seriously considering how to better use some of the resources that I've got instead of buying Considering. Is there any farming practice that you have changed since last year? Bearing in mind you heard Will Scales talk called Min Till. 
you've heard all about soil depletion, you've heard all these arguments. Is there any farming change that you've put into practice that you can talk about going forward? The main farming change that we are playing with this year is to plough less. Now, that's partly because it's been such a ridiculously wet year. That's all part of it. We've been forced into it. But the point is that it's actually given us a chance to experiment with that in certain aspects. So that that is the main thing that we're playing with this year. How can you not plough then? What do you have to do? Well, what we do is instead of turning the soil over to a depth of 8 or 10 inches, we're actually using a set of discs to cultivate the top 2 or 3 inches. That will make a big difference to the worms. And then plant into that sort of mixture of crop residue and soil that's left. Now, there are several things that the jury's out at the moment, but one of the reasons that I did that was that when growing grass, particularly, which slugs love, if you can get the seedbed very firm, it stops the slugs moving around so much within the soil, which means that they don't actually get to breed as much and they don't get to eat as much of the grass, thereby not requiring the slug bait. So, so far, so good. The grass has just come up. It's had one dressing of slug bait and it looks as if that's all it's going to need, which will be fine. The fact that we've only cultivated a shallow layer of soil means that we haven't disturbed any of the earthworms down below. They will be less affected by the slug bait because they're not all turned and turned round. We've got a firm seed bed, which has certainly slowed the slugs down. So hopefully that's a way forward and I'm confident that we will go forward establishing our grass seed that way. The negative is that the act of not ploughing doesn't give us the weed control that the plough would give us by inverting the soil. And whether we can cope with the weeds in the crop to the extent that we can certify the crop remains to be seen. But, but that is the balance. It's the physical control of the weeds, the physical method produced a result or can we use chemical which way does the compromise go and it is all a compromise i reckon it's our 20th anniversary somewhere about today not of our marriage but i think that i met you in the yew tree pub about 20 years ago i must say you had less gray hair and i think that your first words to me were oh hello you're that wiggly woman aren't you I know all about worms. Yeah, I and now, that 20 statement. years later, I'm sat on my sofa opposite you and you're still telling me about them. Well, not really. I'm telling you... You've got a one-track mind, you have. <laughs> <laughs> I do regret telling you at that point that I knew all about worms because then you proceeded to loudly tell me why I didn't. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, you were right. <laughs> Very sad. If anyone wants to go and find out more about the Nuffield Farming Scholarship, then put in Nuffield Farming Scholarship into Google and get to the website. You can buy the praises, or I think the praises are free, and the full reports are downloadable from December, except Louise Manning's, because she is the goody two-shoes of our group. She's a star. And she has got her report in. It's all done and dusted. It's probably worth also mentioning that the Nuffield organisation is an international organisation and if you're less than 45 years old and you have an interest in food production, agriculture or whatever... Horticulture, Horticulture, it's much broader now than it used to be, but the possibility... Web (laughs) 2.0, social media, rural business... The possibility of actually doing a Nuffield scholarship 
is worth investigating. And the age limit is, the upper age limit is 45, I think. Isn't that right? 45 it is. And that it is, for all the Nuffield scholars that I've met, they always say it's going to be a life-changing experience. And they all say, no, not for me. But when they come back, they all say it is a life-changing experience. I've seen several presentations now. I've been to two conferences and I am well impressed. Highlights this year? For me, the biggest effect... Mine. No, mine. Yeah, but I'd heard yours before (laughs) I went to the conference. (laughs) You did all right. Honestly. (laughs) Go on. That was very good. Thank you. And you did shake them up a bit because some of them... uh, Well, I was going to say they're they're a bit sort of... um, before web 2.0 and they do struggle with the idea but they're coming along and some of the comments that have come afterwards are great so that somebody said if farmers don't take up the benefits of the internet and the communication it offers it won't be through any fault of yours which i thought was testament to your efforts on the subject so that was good but highlights for me apart from yours i love charlie walker's presentation because I just thought it was great, and now I know how to peel a banana the correct way. (laughs) It's from the bottom. I'll leave you to think about that. Uh, But the things that really hit home to me, Becky Float's presentation on phosphate and the fact that we haven't got any, I found very mentally stimulating. And I liked Fiona Hillman's presentation on the soil and soil organisms and it's easy to go on and on about earthworms and crucial they are but there are a number of other soil organisms which are disturbed by cultivation notably fungi that she was saying and that the act of cultivation breaks all these things up but they are important in how the soil deals with organic matter and its resulting fertility and I found that very stimulating and thought-provoking. Here's a mention that I've had from Stephen Watkins who previous uh, to my Nuffield experience uh, was pretty anti-computers and was on the selection panel for me. And he said, Dear Heather, I am listening to my first wiggly pod cast while typing with the speed that one finger typing gives. So it will use the full 19 mins of the cast to type this. Well done. I do hope you use Dell computers. If not, I'm sure they will let you spend some of the prize on hardware. Love, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) I did enjoy Louise's presentation on water, but this year it's been very difficult for me to actually consider water a diminishing resource (laughs) because, frankly, I've had enough water to keep me going for a lifetime. We even had a flood. We had a river going through the Wiggly Shed on Sunday evening, so much so that the coir blocks have expanded (laughs) and taken up the whole shed. The seeds all pushed to the side because coir blocks have become full of water. (laughs) Well, when I thought about it the other day, I've got one field which is not normally considered a flooding problem. It's not a particularly low-lying field. It does flood occasionally. But when I thought about it, it had been flooded twice before I combined the crop, and it's been flooded twice since I've drilled the grass seed in it as the following crop. And I'm thinking, this, this is never right, it's not fair. Accept it, Phil. It's called a pond. 
Possibly. It is now. Listen, let's listen to Louise explaining to us all about the water footprint and why she thinks this is the most important consideration that we've got above carbon, above copper, above food, above everything. According to Louise, water is the key. Okay, so I'm with Louise, Nuffield scholar, doctor in global food production. Anything else I've missed? Chicken expert, yeah. mother of three. I advise companies in the food chain on food safety, animal welfare. Bit of a genius. Wow. Yeah. Now listen, what I want to know about is I want you to explain to me how you think of water because I've never heard anyone speak of water in the way that you spoke of it to me the rain falls I automatically drink from the cup it flushes away obviously recycling where possible but it ends it's sort of a natural resource it's free-ish kind of goes into the sea you know I've not thought of it as a commodity well if we look at this planet we've got lots of oceans so we've got lots of water but we can't drink it the only water we can drink is about two percent of the water on this planet a lot of that's locked in icebergs or in snow so actually when you look at the water that's available to the how many ever billion people there are on this earth it's actually quite a small amount and that water gets recycled so people probably did the water cycle at school. The uh, water will fall out of the sky. It will then fall onto the ground or into um, a lake or river. If it falls on the ground, the crops can take it up. And then that water is held in those crops until they're harvested or eaten by livestock. But if it goes down through the soil and goes into what you would call the aquifers underneath, um, it's called groundwater, that water is held there until someone sinks a well and takes it out. Or it may run off, as people see in the floods, and go into surface water and enter the lakes, streams and rivers. Or what can happen is that it will evaporate. If it evaporates, it will go up into the atmosphere and form clouds. Now, water can evaporate from the sea and it can evaporate from land. And water is recyclable. But depending on the activities and what we use it for, sometimes we can get that water back in a couple of hours. Sometimes it can be months, or sometimes it can be whole generations. What do you mean whole generations? Because it goes round all the time. Well, if we're using water and it goes out to sea, we've got to wait for the water to evaporate and then come back over the land and then fall as rainfall so that we can capture it again to reuse it. Now, we can use desalination, and if you look around the world where they've got serious issues with how much water they've got, uh, if you look at Australia, for example, they're building massive desalination plants. We've just had planning permission approved in London for a desalination plant. So that is, th and they what take the salt out of the water and it still tastes a bit iffy. Well, they take the salt out of the water, but it requires so much energy to take the salt out of the water. So it's adding to our use of fossil fuels. So on the one hand, we've got water to drink, but on the other hand, we're putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. One of the best ways to manage water effectively is to use it more wisely. It's important that everybody just thinks about water. Now, it's very difficult on a day when it's pouring with rain. We think, why should I worry about it? 
Also, as a nation, we're fairly rich in terms of water, aren't we? Well, actually, we're not. If you turn the tap on in Chelmsford, that water fell as rainfall in Suffolk. It's actually been transferred all that way. If you live in the West Midlands and you turn your tap on, that water fell as rainfall in Wales. We relatively transfer water large distances already in the UK. We also recycle water. So that water that you're getting out of the tap may be, have been through many people before it gets to you. Really? Now that's quite a thought, isn't oh, it? Um, anecdotally, they reckon that any water you drink in London's been through seven people on average before you drink it. No. But we don't even think about the fact that our water's recycled all the time. So isn't that a really good thing? Haven't we got the hang of it already? What's the it problem? Is a good, it is a good thing, but our population's rising in the UK very quickly. If you look at India, for example, 86% of the water that's used in India is used for agriculture. And as they improve efficiency in agriculture, they will have more water available either to produce more food or for the towns and cities. In the UK, we only use about 2% of our water for agriculture. So the major demand already is in the towns and cities, especially in the east and southeast of England. And as time goes by, if the predictions are right and our population rises to 70 million, the population of Wales and Scotland is looked to set and remain at about 8 million. So the other 62 million are going to be in England, most of them in the east and southeast of the country. And if you look at the Thames Valley, there's less water available per head in the Thames Valley than in Egypt because of the sheer population. OK, so the water falls from the sky and I'm a Welsh farmer. It lands on my land. I've got a cup of water in my hand that's... Is it, is it mine? That is the ultimate question. Who does water belong to? In many parts of the world, water's free. If you can access it, you can have it. But increasingly, as water becomes more scarce we're starting to lay down rules. You can only access water if you've got a right to access it. In this country, we call that a licence or an abstraction right. So the water companies, for example, have a right to abstract so much water per year from the rivers and the lakes that we have in place. They're only allowed to use so much water. The farmers, too, may have an abstraction licence, so if they're irrigating vegetables or if they're using the water on their land for livestock to drink they have a maximum amount of water they can take or they pay for each litre of water that they have. The problem is that the environment also needs water. If we have riv many rivers in this country that are over licensed they've given out more licenses than the water that's available the amount of water that's left for nature is reducing. This becomes a problem if the cities continue to grow because they're going to want more water. Now, we could look at methods of recycling water and improving our wastage, but essentially we have to decide who gets the water. Does nature get the water? Do the cities and the energy companies have priority? And this is a huge debate that will be discussed for many years in the UK. So how do you see it panning out? So looking ahead, I don't know, 10 years in the Louise plan for water, 
in an ideal world, what will have happened? And what will I, as a gardener, a farmer, what will I be doing differently? Well, wiggly wigglers already play a part because you have your water butts and you have a whole range of ways that you offer to help gardeners and people in their homes to reclaim water. I think the biggest push that we need to have is education. In the schools, I would like to see that we can develop packs on water usage, water quality, water projects. Um, We could develop podcasts, a whole range of ways of engaging children. I go into schools and talk about food and farming. And again, we could get water advocates that could go in and talk about water and how we use them. I think we need to stop taking it for granted. Next time we buy a pair of jeans and we think that pair of jeans is 11,000 litres of water... You what? 11,000 litres of water to make a pair of jeans. That's right. How can that be? Well, in many regions of the world where cotton's grown, it's very hot. So in order for the cotton to grow effectively, you have to irrigate. And irrigate means that you take water either from wells or from nearby rivers and you put it onto the ground so it goes into the soil so the plant can take it up. In hot countries, that evaporates. So it goes off and hopefully at some point will fall as rain falls somewhere else. Because this uses up a lot of water, the cotton that you then use which goes on to be processed and then turned into jeans, has what we would call a high water footprint. Um, And various people around the world are now beginning to look at both our food and the goods that we use to see how much water does it take. Now, I don't think there should be a brow-beating exercise, more for people to begin to understand how the decisions they make can impact on the environment. And I would like to see in my 10-year plan that water footprint is as widely discussed and understood as carbon footprint. Wow. Now, all we talk about is carbon footprinting. And this must have got a real impact on that anyway. But in your opinion, what should we be focusing on? Because we hear so many messages, so many... I mean, this genuinely is my first understanding in any way of the impact of water. I've known for ages that we need to value it as a resource, just as we need to value just about every natural resource. But I've never thought of it taking 11,000 litres to make a pair of jeans. It just sounds incredible. Which is most important? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to worry about my carbon footprint or am I to worry more about my water footprint? I think the most important thing is to stop worrying. Ah, that's nice. The most important thing is to recognise that what's good for the environment is actually good for you. If you cut down on how much you waste, you will not only help your pocket, but you will also help the environment. All too often people are browbeaten about the environment. The environment is not a negative thing. We can do so many positive things, both as individuals and as families, and enjoy it. And so I say stop worrying about water footprint and the environment. Think about how can I stop wasting things? How can I do things in my daily life 
where I am using resources more effectively. I wonder, when we fast forward ten years' time, whether you and I will not be wearing jeans. I wonder if we'll be wearing wool from our local hills that's made into trousers. And I wonder if we heard another talk today, uh, which was I found completely inspiring, from Charlie about nature, nurture and nudity, which was all about sheep automatically shedding their wool and therefore it was less labour-intensive. Do you think that actually maybe we'll come back to valuing all those extra resources like the byproduct that is wool like the extras that come from the farm that are byproducts so actually we'll close some more loops and trade much more locally I'm fairly old here. I remember when the first nylon sheets came in and everyone thought, nylon sheets, let's have them for about two weeks till they all got electric shocks from them. (laughs) But we have, because we've used lots of materials that were oil-based, we've got very used to using materials that have a high energy cost. I've got a pair of leather trousers which I've had probably... Well, you've definitely had two years because I've seen them. (laughs) I love my leather trousers. It's recycled material. Yeah. And hopefully slightly fashionable. My daughters may dispute that, but... I think they look cool, love. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they, um, it's something that you can do to think about how can we reuse all of the resources. As I said, it doesn't have to be browbeating. We can do so much to safeguard both on a local and a global scale. I'm very much in favour of local food. Someone said to me once, when you see your friend give their child your product, you understand how vital your responsibility is and you go away and you make that product safe every single time. And I like to know that if I buy some local products, I am helping my friend down the road. But I am very, very lucky. I am very lucky that I have the opportunity to buy food from my neighbours. If I lived in the middle of Manchester, I wouldn't have that choice, and I don't believe people should necessarily be decried because they don't have that choice. And sometimes in the farming community, we forget how lucky we are. If I want blackberries, I go along the hedge and I've got blackberries and I can go home and make a blackberry crumble. Uh, When I lived in London, um, I might have gone to Hyde Park for a walk or one of the other parks near where I lived, but you couldn't go and pick blackberries. And I think we have to recognise that for some people it's easier to live your life that has less impact on the environment. For other people it's much harder just by where they are and the environment, physical environment they live in. And one of the things we've got to stop doing is apportioning blame because we need to enable people to live their lives and if they care about issues such as the environment, they will then take action. That's fantastic and I will be coming round for lunch to try Swede tomato and blackberry pie. (laughs) Thank you, Louise. There we are. Thank you, Louise. And if you want to find out more about Louise 
please go to www.thehumanimprint.typepad.com. And she's on Facebook and she's just set up a new Facebook group called Water Matters. Anyway, what about their wiggly celebration? There's been all sorts going on. The girls here have had fish and chips. I didn't. They didn't get me any. And we have been in New York rocking it up. And I didn't go there either. We went to restaurants. We saw the election happening. We did our first ever press conference. Proper, proper job. With a U table with the press down the side and we were up the front. Fielding questions from Bloomberg and all sorts. And do you know why? Tell us, dear wife. (laughs) He does know why. Because we have won the... Global Dell Small Business Award. And we won it because you, dear listener, are listening to this podcast. It's almost that, that we won it because of our social media. And I'm particularly pleased in my Nuffield year because it hopefully will inspire more farmers to start using the web. And that's, that's really important to me. And also, it gave us the main thing is we got this prize which is $50,000 worth of Macs. Only joking. (laughs) (laughs) Of Dell computers, which lots of people in the office are joyous, joyous, joyous about. And I'm very grateful to Dell, indeed. And even better than that, because of the credit I'm sure put them to good use. Our prize is worth 30% more. (laughs) Great. Well, maybe, I don't know, I don't know how that works. But anyway, isn't it brilliant? So thank you for listening. Thanks to everyone who's played a part in this podcast and our social media strategy, especially Michael, unless he cuts it out. And uh, to everyone who knows us, and I'd like to thank my mum for um, this and that. I'll thank Don. Uh, But, you know, it's all very well winning an award, but listen to this email. This, to me, is just as good. I lied. It's not as good as the steak and the champagne, but it's good. Dear Wiggly Wigglers, this is a true story, and if you want to use it in your publicity, you're welcome to do so. I recently ordered some goods from another company. They're a leading charity concerned with birds. I wanted some things from their online shop, which Wiggly Wigglers don't stock. I also wanted to compare the quality. Their website didn't work properly, so I had to order over the phone instead. Sorry for this bitching. Their goods didn't arrive within the scheduled delivery period. They arrived three days later. Two of the items were damaged in transit, including a premium bird feeder from which the purchase had broken off in transit. One of the items was scheduled for later delivery, but I cancelled this one. I contacted the company to return their goods. So far, their couriers have failed to collect them on two occasions. In the same time frame... I've had two deliveries from Wiggly Wigglers. Both arrived promptly, in good condition and safely packaged. I got some free mealworms too, which my Robin loves, and I got my Wiggly catalogue, which is just as well as I know where I'll be spending my money from now on. Keep up the good work. It's all those little details that matter. All best, Kevin Fleming. Thanks, Kevin, very much. (laughs) Thank goodness they got there, eh? I was going to say, good job we didn't run over his parcel with a forklift then. (laughs) Hey. Definitely not. And so, from this week's Wiggly Sofa, we'll say we look forward to having Ricardo back on the couch. Do we? (laughs) He's busy. He's busy 
developing another school garden. And it's absolutely pouring down with rain, so it'll be soaking wet in the mud. And by the time you listen to this, you will know whether or not we've actually had anybody come to our brand new floristry opening. And because if we haven't, you and I, Phil, will have 300 mince pies to chomp through. Not a problem. I can manage that. I'm on my way. (laughs) We would be very grateful if you would bother to go to iTunes and write us up a review. If you've had a product, go to our reviews bit on the website. And we've got a new feature. And this is the secret at the moment because it's a bit of a pilot. All that noise is Jam, who is scumbling in amongst the Scalectrics, which we're sat in amongst in the sitting room. So if you go to our website, you'll see a new feature and it's called Deal of the Day. And you get this corking deal... Just for a moment in time, and today's deal has gone, and it's only 11 o'clock, so you've got to crack on. There's an RSS feed so that you can just join in and subscribe to it. Put it in amongst your other feeds, and every day it'll come up with a new Wiggly deal. What a corker, Michelle. So, from the Wiggly sofa, relax now. Go and have a Radox bath. It's bye from me. Why would I want a bath? I'm not dirty yet, and it's bye from me. Louise has just given my husband a piece of advice. Louise, what was it? The old bull said to the young bull, let's go in this field and have a look at the cows. And the young bull said, let's run over and have a few. And the old bull stopped for a minute and said, let's walk over and have them all. (laughs) 